Horace Greeley's new book, another edition just ready, What I Know of Farming, one of the best books ever published upon the subject. It does not consist of a lot of dry, dull essays upon agriculture that no one can be interested in, but is a work written by one of the greatest as well as one of the simplest writers in the world in his most agreeable manner. Farmers will gather from its pages a great deal of valuable information useful for them in their vocation, and the general reader will find it exceedingly fascinating from the pleasant style of treating the various topics. The farmer will make and save thousands of dollars if he will only read and practice from this book, and other readers, chiefly young people, will gather from its sensible pages advice plainly told that will be gold to them in after life. What I Know of Farming Mr. Greeley has written this book in the plainest and simplest manner. He says, I hope to be generally accorded the merit of having set forth the little I pretend to know in language that few can fail to understand. I have avoided, as far as I could, the use of terms and distinctions unfamiliar to the general ear. The little I know of oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, etc., I have kept to myself, since whatever I might say of them would be useless to those already acquainted with the elementary truths of chemistry, and only perplexing to others. If there is a paragraph in my pages which will not be readily and fully understood by an average schoolboy of fifteen years, then I have failed to make that paragraph as simple and as lucid as I intended. What I know of farming! We don't think, we don't read enough. Mr. Greeley says, We need to mingle more thought with our work. Some think till their heads ache intensely. Others work till their backs are crooked to the semblance of half an iron hoop, but the workers and the thinkers are apt to be distinct classes, whereas they should be the same. Admit that it has always been thus, it by no means follows that it always should or shall be. Mr. Greeley closes his book with the joyful trust that these essays, slight and imperfect as they are, will incite thousands of young farmers to feel the loftier pride in their calling, and take a livelier interest in its improvement, and that many will be induced by them to read abler and better works on agriculture, and the sciences which minister to its efficiency, and impel its progress towards a perfection which few, as yet, have even faintly foreseen. What I Know of Farming! The book is a remarkable one, and the good sense, excellent advice, and valuable hints that it abounds in make it really valuable to anyone in any sort of business, or occupation, or profession. It ought to sell yet millions of copies. Every family ought to have a copy, and they ought to read and reread it. It ought to be in the hands of every man, woman, and child in the world, if they know how to read, and if they don't, it ought to be read to them. The book is published in a very handsome style, beautifully printed, bound in elegant cloth covers with gilt back. Price, $1.50.
G.W. Carlton and Company, Publishers, Madison Square, New York. Sold at the Office of the Tribune and sent by mail, postage free, on receipt of the price, $1.50 by the Tribune Association, Tribune Office, New York. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 41. Today, because of the muse, which I finally heated, I am drinking straight-up Lapsang Sushong from McNulty's. Mmm. Oh, God, that's good. That's just what I needed. A day or two ago, that muse came to me. Little voice said, I want straight Lapsang Sushong. And I said, you sure about that? I got this great blend. You know, we worked this out together. It's got the Lapsang Sushong and the... The Formosa Oolong and the Kimun blended in. And the little voice kept saying, No, I, I want some straight Lapsang Sushong. And I finally listened to it yesterday. And, oh my God, it was exactly what I needed. I, I need to honor that little voice more often. Mm. I'll post a picture in the show notes. Damn, this is good. Recently... I came up with the perfect metaphor to explain what Lapsang Sushong is in the tea drinker's world. Lapsang Sushong is to tea as Mahler is to classical music, which I originally was going to say IPA uh, is to beer as Lapsang Sushong is to tea, but the thing is, a lot of beer geeks really dig IPA. Like, the hoppy stuff, taking to that is like falling off a log. For a lot of beer geeks. Whereas, Lapsang Sushong, it's one of those things where so many tea drinkers love to hate it and love to have long conversations about how much they hate it. Uh, but the people who like Lapsang Sushong, like me, really, really like it. Uh, same with Mahler. So, the ad that you heard at the top was, as you could hear, about the new book by Horace Greeley, What I Know of Farming, and I chose that, I ain't gonna lie, mainly because it was printed in the same issue of the New York Tribune, Greeley's paper, as one of the primary articles that I'm going to read to you today, uh, but also because this is the historical context within which all of these articles are set, because anything that came out of Greeley's brain was a really big deal. Better or for worse, dude had a huge cultural footprint. So, did you notice that bit in the, the ad copy about how, well, 
this may encourage people to read better, more complex books on agriculture uh, written by more knowledgeable, knowledgeable people than I. I would say that's to the degree that that advertisement was honest, which is not too much, to the degree that it was honest, I would say that's the, the core of the, the sincere aspect of the ad. I get the sense that Greeley really felt that. Now, to the degree that it was uh, exploitative of the time, I would have to say there's a hell of a lot of synergy between that book, or at least the way it's advertised, and his whole go yes go west young man shtick because he is really pandering to people who don't think that they should have to learn the chemistry in order to be farmers and i got to tell you that flies in the face of everything i have read in the syracuse newspapers for the last 6 years because Farming was very much a scientific and engineering endeavor at that time. A lot of the prominent farmers were also the more respected minds in applied chemistry of that time. You see lots and lots of articles about farming types giving lectures about their lived experience of decades of farming and how they've applied their chemical knowledge to uh, cultivation and to taming the land and getting the most out of the land. Because remember, this was an age of expansion when scouting out new territory and even scouting out settled territory, but unexploited territory, was big business. Guys like uh, Homer D.L. Sweet, who, whom you'll find featured in a previous episode, this guy was a nerd extraordinaire, but he came across as a little bit closer to the rock star end of the spectrum in the newspapers because he had that in-depth applied knowledge of chemistry and geology where he would go around scoping out county by county the strata and the chemical composition and the mineral composition and everything about the microclimate and the microgeological situation and how that could be applied to make that a thriving agricultural community. So there's a, there's a degree to which I feel like uh, Greeley is going against the grain here to pander to a a general readership which is just going to buy the book and consider themselves knowledgeable uh, who don't want to have to learn all the chemistry and b to those people who are planning to go west at Greeley's behest just take the plunge now nah, I don't have to know about farming I've got Greeley's book I could be way off base about that but I don't know I don't know it seems like there's too much of a synergy between this and the whole Manifest Destiny shtick for that to be non-substantive. Anyway, today I am not going to be talking about stuff that happened last week, 150 years ago. I wish I were, but hey, I'm the parent of a toddler and I'm losing my fucking mind uh, I wanted to do all of this at least a week ago, 
but that did not happen. And uh, it's been a difficult week. I will say that Friday was a real saving grace. Friday, I had a good day with Beatrice, and she napped at 5 o'clock, as I expected her to. Uh, I was absolutely expecting her to curb stomp me on Friday, given the way that week had gone, but I was pleasantly surprised. And here we are at the weekend, and I've got a brief window of time for some recording, and I want to spend it on someone who is very important to me, because I feel like I have, to the extent that I have immersed myself in the world of 1868 to 1861, during the last four years of following along with these Syracuse newspapers, to the degree that I have escaped into the world of Reconstruction Syracuse, to the extent that I've gotten to know anyone, I've gotten to know Samuel J. May, because the guy is omnipresent. He is a force to be reckoned with in the abolition community. Every article having to do with abolition relates to, to him in some way, even if it doesn't name him explicitly, which most of them do. He is right there in the thick of things, from any kind of fundraiser to any kind of, of speaking event, any kind of rallying the, the troops in the face of the anti-abolition forces, which were all also gathering in Syracuse after the, the abolition forces sort of shifted between 1850 and 51, after the National Ab Abolition Convention uh, more or less uh, effectively got kicked out of New York after the hubbub of 1850, that shifted to Syracuse in 1851. And by that time, Samuel J. May was already deeply established as an abolition figure in that area, but his, his stature only grew after 1850, and then 1851, he was right in the thick of things uh, with the Jerry rescue, and again, his name was ubiquitous through all those years when abolition tipped the scales towards some kind of final resolution of this uh, this powder keg that had been growing and growing and growing for decades. And he was, he wasn't the most flashy presence, like he wasn't a garrison, but he was a steady hand and a vital force for good in the abolition community, not only in Syracuse, but his name was known all throughout the country, as you'll see here. Unfortunately, it's not a happy occasion that triggered this episode. Samuel J. May died more or less unexpectedly after an illness that everybody thought he was going to recover well from on July 1st, 1871. In Syracuse, there were no uh, newspapers printed on Sunday, as with most towns. Most towns didn't print on, on Sunday at that time. 
So since Fulton history has been down the last couple of weeks and I have not been able to look in any uh, Syracuse newspapers, I'm sure the newspapers of July 3rd uh, were absolutely full of news about the death of Samuel J. May in the Syracuse area, but I, I can't tell you about that until Fulton history is back up. So we're going to start with the Chicago Tribune of July 3rd, 1871. Reverend, excuse me, Reverend Samuel J. May died at his home in Syracuse, New York at half past 10 on Saturday evening. He had been ill for six weeks, but was not regarded as in danger. He was able on Saturday to regard to receive several calls, among them President White of Cornell University. He was in his 74th year and graduated at Harvard in the class with Caleb Cushing and George Bancroft. In, in 1815, he accepted a call to the Unitarian Church of Syracuse, which pastorate he resigned when 70 years old. The funeral takes place on Thursday afternoon next. Then we move to the New York Herald of the same day. Telegraphic news items, and in amongst these other random items that I included just for flavor, for context, I will read the short obituary. Reverend Samuel J. May of Syracuse died at his home last evening. He had been ill for six weeks, but was not regarded in danger. He was in his 74th year and graduated at Harvard in the class with Caleb Cushing and George Bancroft. Same day, the Wheeling Intelligencer, Wheeling, West Virginia, death of Reverend Samuel J. May of Syracuse. Same story. Oh, and by the way, the blurry print caused me to get that date wrong. It was uh, in 1845 he accepted a call to the Unitarian Church at Syracuse. I thought 1815 sounded a lot too soon. Same day, Memphis Daily Appeal, under New York State items, we have Syracuse, July 2nd, same article. The Rock Island Argus. Same article. And then the New York Sun, again on the same day, an even shorter three-sentence version of that same article. And then the New York Tribune, again, the same article as all those others. So that's a total of six short articles on July 3rd, a day and a half to two days after the death of one of the most prominent abolitionists in the country, and absolutely one of the top abolitionists in the Syracuse area. Notice what's missing from those six articles that I was able to find on the Monday following his death on Saturday. Not one of those six articles mentioned his abolition activities. And I started to get my dander up because 
I view everything that I read through the lens of racial violence and specifically the lens of a world that doesn't know it yet, but it's halfway through Reconstruction. And it strikes me that when someone dies whose life has been devoted to the cause of abolition and who is known throughout the country for representing, for fighting for, for devoting their life's energy towards that cause, when that person dies and there are a bunch of obituaries and they don't even mention his abolition activity, that conspicuous silence about such a conspicuously important aspect of their life, that says something to me. That seems intentional. It strikes me that the lack of mentioning his abolition activities that you just heard and which will you will continue to hear in the following articles is emblematic of a turning away from that which the people of the time deemed discomforting. Remember Young America? Oh, Young America is not interested in old things. Young America is looking ahead. Young America is forging new ways of, of living and hustling and bustling and buying new things, not, not concerned with, uh, with thriftiness. Forget the old, in with the new. The war has only been over for six years, and yet it was not comfortable to look back on the days of, of abolition, because that would just that would ju would just serve to to compound our discomfort with the burgeoning KKK. The newspapers were absolutely full of anti-KKK legislation, stories of KKK outrages in the South. Everybody, most people let's say, could read the writing on the wall, and they didn't want to deal with it. They certainly didn't want to think about the deeply uncomfortable struggles that had led to the spark that showed the world that that irrepressible conflict was indeed irrepressible. Long story short, I think it was just more comfortable for them to focus on other aspects of May's life than it was to represent him truly as a man who devoted his life to the cause of abolition. And that's one of the reasons I'm doing this. Historic headlines will return after these messages. New publications! The July number of The Examiner exhibits a marked change for the better in its freedom from offensive personalities and its greater trust in appeals to the intellect for the elucidation of truth. The contents are strongly marked by bold and original thought, advancing ideas which will be profoundly repulsive to most 
Christian minds, but supported by quiet argument instead of inflammatory suggestions. The sincerity, ability, and deep religious feeling, amounting almost to mystic enthusiasm of Mr. Town, cannot be doubted even by those to whom his reasonings are unsatisfactory and his conclusions intolerable. A noteworthy contrast to the revolutionary character of the leading article by the editor is the paper by Miss Frances Power Cobb, in which that admirable writer ably and earnestly maintains the efficacy and religious duty of prayer for spiritual blessings. The monthly survey of current literature has its usual completeness, exhibiting a discriminating taste a wise sagacity, and a force and elegance of statement in its judgments of books that are rarely found even in the highest critical authorities. And we're back! Now, moving forward to July 4th, this is when the rubber really starts to hit the road in terms of giving really meaty, sincere fitting tribute to the magnitude of the life of abolitionist Samuel J. May. This is from the New York Tribune. Obituary. The Reverend Samuel J. May. The death of this gentleman on Saturday last at his home in Syracuse closed a life of so much value to the world as to deserve more than the simple announcement already made. He was born in Boston and, after being graduated at Harvard, became a Unitarian minister and settled at Brooklyn, Connecticut. From his youth he was remarkable for his ingenuous love of truth and his willingness to sacrifice every personal and selfish interest for its promotion. Hence, he was among the first to hear and to heed the voice of Garrison pleading for the immediate emancipation of the slaves of the United States. He was one of the earliest members of the New England Anti-Slavery Society, formed in 1832, the first association ever organized in this country upon the principle of immediate, in distinction from gradual, emancipation. When prudence Crandall, a Quaker, was persecuted and proscribed for admitting colored girls to her school for young ladies at Canterbury, Connecticut, Mr. May was her devoted and chivalrous defender. The late Arthur Tappan, then a prosperous merchant of New York, supplied him with the money necessary for the prosecution of this war with the spirit of caste, which at that time dominated at the North scarcely less than at the South, he was a member of the Philadelphia Convention of 1833, which formed the American Anti-Slavery Society, and his name is among those appended to the immortal Declaration of Sentiments, penned by Garrison, and then adopted. Soon afterward, he left the pulpit to become the general agent of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society, a place for which, by the singular union of gentleness with courage that was ever the most distinguished trait of his character, he was preeminently fitted. A few years afterward, he accepted a call to the pastorate of the Unitarian Church in South Situate, Massachusetts, 
In or about 1842, at the earnest solicitation of Horace Mann, he again left the pulpit to take charge of the girls' normal school at Lexington. As a teacher, he was very successful, winning the esteem and confidence of his pupils and awakening in them the high aspirations which are the surest defense against youthful frivolity and temptation. In 1845, he again returned to the pulpit, accepting a call to the pastorate of the Unitarian Society in Syracuse. In this place, he remained until 1868, when, having completed his three score years and ten, he resigned. Since that time, however, he has been much employed in missionary labors, preaching as often as opportunity offered and as the infirmities of age would allow. He was an earnest and devoted Unitarian, but above all, a sincere, true-hearted Christian and philanthropist. He was highly esteemed and loved not only by those of his own sect, but by all the Orthodox people with whom he was acquainted. In Syracuse, he was identified with every movement for the moral, intellectual, and social improvement of the people, and his death must be regarded by all, without distinction of sect or party, as a public calamity. Entering with his whole soul into the anti-slavery movement, even before its distinct organization, he was faithful to the end, and having lived to witness its complete triumph, he goes to his grave in a full age, like as a shock of corn cometh in his season. So that's July 3rd, and that's the only one I found on that day of any consequence. Moving forward to July 4th, we're going to start with the Knoxville Chronicle of Knoxville, Tennessee. Syracuse, New York, July 3rd. Reverend Samuel J. May is dead, aged 74 years. That's it. New Orleans Republican. Same one-liner. Daily Phoenix, Columbia, South Carolina. Same one-liner. And that's it for that day. Now, on July 5th, we go to the Chicago Tribune. An anti-slavery pioneer. The announcement reached us by telegraph two days ago of the death of the Reverend Samuel J. May of Syracuse, one of the oldest and ablest of the Unitarian clergymen of the country and still more distinguished as a pioneer in the anti-slavery cause. Mr. May was one of the few in original members of the first anti-slavery society formed in Boston on the 1st of January, 1832, which avowed as its cardinal principle the immediate and unconditional emancipation of the slaves, and was one of the few men who rallied to the support of Mr. Garrison when, three years before, he established the Liberator. From that day to the time of the proclamation of Abraham Lincoln abolishing American slavery, Mr. May was the firm and unbending advocate of the cause he so early espoused, standing shoulder to shoulder through long years of obloquy and persecution and misunderstanding with his friend Garrison, never swerving a single inch, never compromising, never moved by the blandishments of friends or the hostility of foes from the great cause to which he had devoted his life. 
It is the fate of all moral reformers whose aim it is to right some great wrong in the face of the apparent interests, the prejudices, and the moral and religious teachings of their time to be not only misunderstood but vilified, and the early anti-slavery reformers did not escape this common lot. The younger generation of our time do not know, for the history of the anti-slavery cause in this country has yet to be written, and can hardly apprehend the intense bitterness of the persecution which, forty years ago, was visited upon all on whom the obloquy of abolitionism rested. It was not only that prices were put upon the heads of some of the most distinguished by southern legislatures, and almost certain death awaited any of them who should be caught in a southern state, but social ostracism was visited upon them at home whenever they had any social position. The most ordinary qualities of good citizens and good neighbors were denied them, and it was held to be a pardonable, if not a commendable act, to subject them to every possible opprobrium and the angry outrages of the mob whenever they appeared in public to advocate the right of black men to liberty. Of this violence and opprobrium, Mr. May suffered his full share, and its disgraceful character and the unreasonable and unreasoning temper of the public mind of that time are the more marked in the light of the advent events of the last ten years, and in the consideration of what manner of man he was. Above all things, he was distinguished by a most careful conscientiousness, the tenderest humanity, a keen sense of justice, a calm reason, and an even temper that never permitted him for a moment to be swayed by passion or to commit any action that could, in its remotest influence, do a wrong to any human creature. It was these precious qualities of mind and heart that governed him in all his relations with his fellow men with whom he came in immediate contact, and which, when he considered the condition of and his duty to his more distant fellow countrymen, the slaves, made him an abolitionist. Nor was he singular among his fellows in the possession of those qualities, for the most of them held them in common with him, and were, like him, led by them to take up the cause of an oppressed people who had no friends. But the erroneous public estimate of the purposes and character of the abolitionists was the more marked in his case, inasmuch as he was a man of singular mildness of presence and a benevolence and sweetness of disposition that made themselves felt like the warmth and brightness of sunlight in all the relations of life and endeared him in a remarkable degree where the one baneful prejudice could be got rid of to all who came in contact with him. It is these characteristics that have specially marked his long and useful life, fragrant and beautiful with tenderness, humanity, and conscientiousness, and which, with other lives more or less like his, have exercised an influence upon our time, the value and weight of which, though we are conscious of their existence, we have not yet learned to analyze and understand. Posterity said an anti-slavery orator thirty years ago in Faneuil Hall, where the most hated man in Boston was William Lloyd Garrison, posterity will seek in vain for marble quite enough for his monument. When the future shall look back upon the middle period of the nineteenth century, 
it will find other men, in their time most misunderstood, to whom graves pilgrims will come to scatter flowers and to breathe the prayer of thanksgiving, that they had lived and worked and borne their crosses manfully, without fainting by the way. That is what I'm talking about. Historic headlines will be right back. Mr. Greeley's recent Letters from Texas and the Lower Mississippi with his Address to the Farmers of Texas and his sketch on speech on his return to New York will be issued in a handsome pamphlet edition on Wednesday, July 5th. Price 25 cents or five copies for $1. Postage paid. Orders. Address to this office will be filed on the principle of first come, first served. And we're back. July 6th. The New York Tribune again. It touches me that the Tribune cared enough to give not one but two lengthy tributes to the life of Samuel J. May. A noble life. All that is mortal of Samuel J. May will today be committed to the grave in Syracuse, and all of him worth surviving will remain on earth in fragrant and inspiring memories. In the light of his lamented but peaceful death, we can now contemplate his career, and no one who is not blinded by prejudice will deny that his life and labor were eminently successful and fruitful. Even now, before the grave has closed over his form, the heart of a whole state has been touched by the simple story of his noble aims and persistent endeavors, and in the region where he was well known, the public sorrow has taken a development very unusual in our shy and cynical race. When his death was quietly announced in a church in Syracuse on Sunday, the house was filled with the sounds of sobbing and grief. He was a friend of mankind in the highest and best sense of the word, who never wearied in good works, and the gratitude and tears which will this day be poured out over his grave will be a sufficient monument and sanction of his admirable life. We are not yet so lost in the groveling worship of mere pecuniary or political success that we can refuse to see the triumph that lies in so perfect a life as that of our departed friend. He garnered up no stolen millions. He held no public office. His name was not handled by the thousand voices of notoriety. And yet, a man who in life was blessed as he was and in death was so mourned has achieved a more substantial success than if he had been in senates or in the Erie Ring. He was too independent and too rigidly conscientious to battle in the ranks of any political party. Yet that great organization which saved the Union and gave freedom to the slaves, is proud to acknowledge his noble and self-sacrificing assistance. He was outside of the pale of the Orthodox Church communion, yet all denominations today are eager to express their veneration for his 
fervent piety, and there is a general feeling that it is creditable to Christianity that this man was a Christian. Every reform, every charity, had his earnest and liberal cooperation. He was broad and free even in his missionary work. He was not fanatically bound to any special field of labor, but his loving sympathy went out alike to the poor, the ignorant, the afflicted, and the vicious, whatever might be the color of their skins, the brogue of their tongues, or the soil of their nativity. And all this was done with no humiliating air of superiority or patronage. He was as simple and large and generous as the sunshine, so that, as a friend remarked, his presence was like a benediction in the city where he lived. It is certainly worthwhile to pause a moment in the struggle and race which occupies us daily to consider the spirit and the springs of a career so full of the best achievements and rewards. Declining the contest for those material gains which the world so greatly covets and which his rare abilities would have enabled him easily to partake, he found in a life of self-sacrifice a perfect and symmetrical exercise of his noblest powers and the fulfillment of his highest needs. Again, it has been proved that the sublime paradox of the Galilean, he that loseth his life shall find it, was founded in the deepest knowledge of the best capacities of the human heart. There is no life fuller of real happiness than a career like that of Samuel J. May, who has been called by one of the most devoted of our public educators in politics, the most patriotic and unselfish of men, and in religion, the modern incarnation of the ser Sermon on the Mount. Yeah! Once again, that's what I'm talking about. That's what he deserved. Now, on to the new national era on that same day, July 6th. Now, keep in mind that the Washington, D.C. new national era was an African-American newspaper and was highly renowned for its quality. So that gives you some sense of... Uh, of the cred of having such a noble uh, uh, benediction to your life printed in this newspaper. Reverend Samuel J. May, we publish elsewhere an obituary notice from the New York Tribune of the late Reverend Samuel J. May of Syracuse, New York. The announcement of the death of this excellent man has already borne sorrow into many a household, and, as the sad intelligence goes on its way, we doubt not that it will be the occasion, both in the new world and the old, of many a sympathizing tear. The brief mention of incidents in Mr. May's life, as cited by the Tribune, is sufficient to show that he was an early, an energetic, and an efficient laborer in the great anti-slavery struggle of which, during the last forty years, our land has been the theater. Indeed, about two years ago, he published his personal recollections of that conflict, and so widespread were they in their ramifications that it was just as when Aeneas told the story of the siege of Troy, the reminiscences of the individual became, 
as it were, the complete history of the conflict. Mr. May, more fortunate than many other noble souls who, at the call of William Lloyd Garrison, girded themselves for the fight, shouting the battle cry of immediate emancipation, fell not during the continuance of the fray. He lived long enough to rejoice at the triumph of justice in the emancipation of our four millions of slaves, and in his last days he was blessed with the privilege of saying, like good old Simeon, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have beheld thy salvation. To those who enjoyed the acquaintance of Mr. May, either in public or in private life, it is needless to speak of the Christian graces which adorned his character. Deeply imbued with the spirit and teachings of the great leader of our salvation, he was as zealous as Peter in his denunciation of sin, at the same time that he was as gentle and as lovingly disposed to the sinner as the Apostle John. In every phase of his worthy and active life, in the seclusion of his family circle, in his lecture room as the educator and guide of youth, upon the platform as the philanthropist pleading the cause of the oppressed, or in his pulpit as a minister of Christ, in all these varying situations he manifested himself as an Israelite, indeed in whom there was no guile. In the apportionment of reward for well-doing, we are satisfied that few men of the age in which we live will come in for a greater share than Samuel J. May, for we are confident that downtrodden humanity was far more than ordinarily benefited by having enlisted in its behalf his scholarly culture, his earnest eloquence, and his religious zeal. We mourn his loss at the same time that we console ourselves with the reflection that Full of honors, as he was full of years, he has nobly done his work and has gone to his reward. Woo! So then the New National Era goes on in another column to print the obituary from the Tribune from the third. Historic Headlines will return after this brief commercial message. The Cooley, His Rights and Wrongs by the author of Jinx's Baby 12 Mo, 380 pages, paper covers, price 50 cents, in extra cloth, on thicker paper, price $1.25. George Rutledge and Sons, Publishers, 416 Broom Street, New York. We now return to our show. Moving on to July 7th. This is from the Vermont Phoenix. Reverend Samuel J. May, for 30 years a compatriot of Garrison and Phillips in the anti-slavery reform and a man of the purest and most exemplary character, died at his home in Syracuse, New York, July 1st, in the 74th year of his age. So that's a short one, but at least it gets to the meat of it. At least it me mentions his anti-slavery work. Same day, Evening Courier and Republic, Buffalo, New York. Funeral of Reverend Samuel J. May. Syracuse, July 6th. 
The funeral of Reverend Samuel J. May was very largely attended today. The Unitarian Church was profusely draped in mourning and decorated with flowers. Short eulogies of deceased were delivered in the church and at the grave by Reverend Mr. Calthrop, Mundy, Mills, President A.D. White, and Bishop Logwin of this city. Reverend Dr. Frothingham of Buffalo and Reverend William Tinden and William Lloyd Garrison of Boston. Among the twelve pallbearers were honor, honors? the Honorable Dennis McCarthy and Charles D. Sedgwick, Dr. H. B. Wilbur, and Mayor Carroll. Elmira Daily Advertiser, Elmira, New York. Syracuse, funeral of Reverend Samuel J. May. The funeral of Reverend Samuel J. May was very largely attended today. The Unitarian Church was profusely draped in mourning and decorated with flowers. Short eulogies of the deceased were delivered in the church and at the grave by Reverend Mr. Calthrop, Mundy, Mills, President A.D. White, and Bishop Logwin of this city, Reverend Dr. Frothingham of Buffalo, and Reverend William Tilden, and William Lloyd Garrison of Boston. Among the twelve pallbearers were the Honorable Dennis McCarthy and Charles B. Sedgwick, Dr. H. B. Wilbur, and Mayor Carroll. I think that one was more or less identical to the previous one. Yep, sorry about that. That was, that was pretty much the same. Then, same day, the Oneida Dispatch, my hometown rag. Death of Samuel Joseph May. The Reverend Samuel J. May died at his home in Syracuse at half past ten Saturday evening. He had been ill for six weeks but was not regarded in danger. He was able Friday to receive several calls, among them President White of the Cornell University. He was in his 74th year and graduated at Harvard in the class with Caleb Cushing and George Bancroft. In 1845, he accepted the call to the Unitarian Church, Syracuse, which pastorate he resigned when 70 years old. His funeral takes place today, Thursday. Samuel Joseph May was well known throughout the country. In central New York, he has left a name that will never die so long as human rights are prized among men. How oft that name has been lisped in tearful gratitude by the poor slave who was fleeing from the land of chains and fetters. His life work was to elevate man, and it mattered not to him whether a man's skin was white or black. But he has gone, and in the years to come not a few, as they bend over the spot where his mortal remains repose, will involuntarily exclaim, when by a good man's grave I muse alone, methinks an angel sits upon the stone, like those of old on that thrice-hallowed night, who sate and watch, watched in raiment heavenly bright. And with a voice inspiring joy, not fear, says, pointing upward that he is not here, that he is risen. Knowing the long and intimate acquaintance existing between Mr. May and the Honorable Garrett Smith, we addressed a note to Mr. S. soliciting the favor of an article from his pen for these columns to the memory of the deceased. In reply, Mr. Smith writes, Peterborough, July 4th, 1871. My dear sir, I have your esteemed letter. 
and I thank you for the honor you do me in soliciting me to prepare an article for your paper on my beloved friend, the late Samuel J. May. I am sorry to be obliged to disappoint you. For months, my nerves have been too weak to allow me to write for the press. My emotional nature will not permit me to do so much as to attend the funeral of dear May, though I hope to look upon his ever-placid face once more before it shall be hidden in the grave. I cannot close my letter without saying that Mr. May was the most Christ-like man I ever knew. He made Christ his pattern, and how successfully was proved by his never-failing gentleness, meekness, and sweetness. Heaven is more desirable to me now that my dear May is there. Respectfully, your friend, Garrett Smith. Hugh here. Did you catch that bit about Garrett Smith's nerves? That hit me really hard. That was a poignant codicil on the relationship between Samuel May and Garrett Smith. I say that because... In 1859, after John Brown was captured, a letter was found on his body, and it was revealed that there was a correspondence between Garrett Smith and John Brown that very few people knew about. And when it became public that Garrett Smith had supported John Brown to a far greater degree than was previously known, a good deal of the country was clamoring for Garrett Smith's head on a pike, and Garrett Smith had a nervous breakdown. So here we are, 12 years later, and Garrett Smith is still not the same. I don't know to what degree his nerves at this point are still affected by the John Brown affair and the subsequent nervous breakdown, but even if there were more recent factors contributing to his bout of nerves, I gotta figure that that nervous breakdown in uh, 59 and 60 had a lot to do with this. And uh, just the fact that it kept him from attending the funeral of Samuel J. May, man, it's so, it's so perfectly fitting and yet so sad. Moving forward to July 8th, the New Northwest, Deer Lodge City, Montana. More or less the same boilerplate, like five or six line obit that appeared in a bunch of other newspapers, no mention of his abolition activities. Historic headlines will return after this brief commercial message. Published today, Price 5 Cents, The Illustrated Christian Weekly, number 13. Contents, The Star-Spangled Banner, with two illustrations. West Point, illustrating the parade ground, the examination, and the review by the president. The Rich Fool, with large cartoons. The Church Mouse, with illustration and articles on the following, among other topics. Fourth of July, a new departure, story of Pitcairn's Island, trust in Providence, my 
Columbines. Sold by all news dealers at five cents a copy. American Tract Society, Publishers, 753 Nassau Street. And we're back. Now, if you are super duper eagle eared, well, now I need to figure out whether that's completely inappropriate or not. Eagle eyed is the expression. I honestly don't even remember if eagles have good ears. I don't know. Anyway, if, uh, if, uh, if you, uh, very keen eared listeners were paying super close attention, you may have noticed one prominent newspaper that I tend to feature a lot was conspicuously silent. And believe me, I looked. I read the Tribune and the Herald cover to cover between July 2nd and July, I don't know, the first week or so. And uh, I found a bunch of stuff in the Tribune, and I believe nothing in the Herald. If there was a thing in the Herald, it was one of the very, very short ones that did not mention Samuel J. May's abolition. You want to hear what the Herald was up to? You want to know what the Herald was filling column space on during those days when other papers were covering the death of Samuel J. May? Here you go. July 5th, New York. This is just a an, an excerpt <laughs> of a page that's more or less devoted to speechifying and glorious renditions of the celebrations of July 4th, the previous day. But they had not assembled to praise the deeds of our ancestors. It was time to look forward, although in giving a thought to the great men of the past, the services of men like George B. McClellan, tremendous cheers, and John T. Hoffman, cheers, should not be passed over in silence. The day they had come to celebrate ought to be a day to be looked back to by the North and South with feelings not of sectional hatred, but as to a day when the whole people resolved for the future to forget the trials and differences of the past, and to start out anew, bound together by the highest motives of patriotism. The past ten years had been years of tribulation, as well as of warning to the people. The party in power had endeavored and still was endeavoring to keep itself in place at the expense of the best interests of the people. During the war, the people poured out their treasures and gave their sons to sustain the country. This strengthened the hands of the administration, which was the instrument of the people in carrying out the war. But when the war had come to an end, that administration had got to believe that the government and itself were one and the same thing. To oppose it was to oppose the government. To cry it down, to point out its errors, was to weaken the country's strength. Forsooth, it had maintained its position of late years in derogation of the rights of the states by the rotten borough system and shameless legislation against the rights of the people, north and south, and had reached a condition where, when, in government circles, honesty in the administration of law and the 
handling of the public funds had become the exception and not the rule. Hugh here. Pay close attention to this. When the Ku Klux Law was passed, there was no constitutional just ground for its passage. It was a revolutionary act. The administration want to rule all the states from Washington instead of allowing the states to take care of their own affairs. This was usurpation, nothing else, a policy of centralization which they won't admit, but to which they stand committed. <sighs> Hugh here. Are you parsing all of this correctly? Because it's so fucking mind-blowing. It's always mind-blowing any time I look at any rhetoric from this era that is not just to the right of center, but really centrist and everything to the right. There is this remarkably tin-eared, tone-deaf thread of, let bygones be bygones. The moment the war was over, everything should have just been back to normal. What are we trying to do? Impose our will upon them? Let them sort it out. The war is over. Let's get on with it. And to these people, at least insofar as they wrote, and I, I, I can't imagine that it was sincere because it comes off as so impossibly self-serving and naive that they would think that immediately after a war fought for the freedom or for the for the continuing enslavement of African Americans the former on one side the latter on the other, after that war, after a rebellion, and after those new amendments, that everything was just supposed to go back to hunky-dory, business as usual, no, 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 no constraints whatsoever on the states that had just been in open rebellion that had just waged a war against the Union. To them, any limitations on those states that had just been in rebellion, that was tyranny. It's, it, 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 it out Herod's Herod. I cannot get my head around how anyone could possibly say that sincerely, but I don't know. I don't know. Continuing on. In Republican conventions, they put the idea under a stronger form of government. In Maine, the... Well, that's, that's all from that excerpt. And here's another uh, excerpt. Governor Hoffman's letter, State of New York, Executive Chamber, Albany, June 29, 1871. To the Council of Sachems of the Tammany Society... I have received your invitation to be present at the celebration of the coming 4th of July at Tammany Hall. I regret very much that other engagements entered into before I received your invitation put it out of my power to comply therewith. Blah, 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 blah. Ah, uh, our recent 
Civil strife led to a great concentration of administrative power in the federal government. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> Here we are. But as the war was temporary and out of the ordinary course of events, so this extraordinary exertion of power should have been temporary and promptly abandoned so soon as the war ceased. Hugh here. Oh, yeah, yeah, just, just leave them to their own devices. I'm sure it'll be fine. In the revolutionary struggle of our forefathers, George Washington was... Motherfucker. Fuck a duck. George Washington was for a time invested with powers almost, if not absolutely, dictatorial. The moment actual war ceased, this greatest of military chiefs gave up his commission divested himself of power and left all political questions to be settled by the free and peaceful deliberations of the people. Yeah, Governor Hoffman, that's a perfectly parallel situation. That's really applicable. Ugh. The whole civilized world, its monarchs, its statesmen, its scholars, its people, looked with awe upon the simple grandeur of the American hero. Today, the world at large does reverence to his memory as to no other name among those who have controlled the political destinies of men. The human race takes pride in him. Shall we, his own countrymen, surrender our faith in his wisdom? And here's, here's the good part. Our great civil war ended six years ago. The deliberations of our people are not yet free. Another fucking cock knocker. This is what really kills me. These shit heels, in the midst of these fatuous arguments that everything should have just gone back to business as usual the moment the war ended. Their, their rhetoric is marbled with the word freedom. And this goes to show you just how deeply white supremacy was baked into the culture because for all the world, these articles read as though these, these people were absolutely unironic in their use of the word freedom, as in their freedoms were being abrogated. And they had no idea how hypocritical that invocation of the word freedom was in the face of everything that had come before everything that had caused the situation, all of the hostilities, all of the hate, all of the, all of the cultural inertia that had led to that point where the 14th and 15th Amendments were required. And Reconstruction laws were absolutely necessary for guiding the states back into the Union under strict guidelines Obviously, that was going to be necessary. But to them, it was usurpation. It was tyranny. 
the deliberations of our people are not yet free. Ah, how do you even frame a response to such howling hypocrisy? I don't have it in me. Skipping down a paragraph or two in that same speech by Hoffman, it has been proved that this great union of ours cannot be torn asunder. It is clear, too, that the rights of states are rights within the Union, safest in the Union, best protected by the peaceful remedies provided by the Constitution. Motherfucker, they just rebelled against the Union. Skipping to another article, this is another fantastic bit of hypocrisy. It is essential, especially at this time, that our people should be reminded at what cost our free government, there's that word again, freedom, our free government was established, what vigilance on the part of great leaders it has required to preserve it from time to time, and that they should be reminded also that we here have, in fact, the guardianship of the cause of popular freedom for the whole human race. No event could occur that would be more disgraceful in the history of man than that we, with our eminent advantages and with this great trust in our hands, should suffer free government to be lost on this continent and should imitate here the bad examples found in the old world, making one man and his will supreme over the people and their rights. That's a Dagwood sandwich of hypocrisy. That's, that's, that's 27 Dyson spheres packed to brimming with hypocrisy. Skipping down, another choice excerpt. The civil status of the colored man is established, and he is in actual possession of the right of suffrage. Bullshit! And here's the kicker. (laughs) That wasn't even it. That was all from the same page about the July 4th festivities of the same day. And this is from that same page. But here we shift gears. Richmond, July 4th, 1871. For the first time since the close of the war, the citizens of Richmond, as an entire community, celebrated the birthday of our national independence. Business was suspended throughout the city, not only in the public offices, banks, etc., but among the merchants and storekeepers. About 9 a.m., all the civic societies and military companies recently organized formed a procession, headed by bands of music, and marched to the fairgrounds. Here was given a grand tournament under the auspices of the Southern Cross Brotherhood and the various lodges of Knights of Pythias, the object of which was to raise funds for the removal of the Confederate dead from Arlington and Gettysburg. Thus, at the same time, a patriotic and benevolent success was at once achieved. By twelve, the city was entirely deserted, that's twelve midnight, and every imaginable vehicle, including a long train of cars, were plying between the city and the grounds amid vast clouds of dust and intense heat. The military companies, with their new gray uniforms, 
trimmed with black, and their glistening United States muskets were objects of universal attraction and great interest, and the Negroes viewed them with no small degree of wonder and amazement, for hitherto they had monopolized the celebration. Not only of our natal day, but every other day. I'm going to repeat that. And the Negroes viewed them with no small degree of wonder and amazement, for hitherto they had monopolized the celebration not only of our natal day, but every other day. Hence, the astonishment of Sambo at this general burst of patriotism on the part of the whites, which was considerably augmented by the gray uniforms and muskets. Yeah, I'm sure no military presence, no federal enforcement will be necessary, right? Everything will be fine. Everything should just go back to hunky-dory. It is estimated that over 10,000 tickets of admission were purchased to the fairgrounds. Where the crowd was immense, William S. Gilman of the Inquirer delivered an address of welcome to the entire crowd in which he said that Virginia would vie with any state, north or south, in making the government as great, powerful, and beneficent beneficent as the fathers of the republic designed it to be, that when Virginia left her sister states, she did not slam the door behind her, but with a face expressive more of sorrow than of anger, she only illustrated to the world that maternity is stronger than any other tie of blood, and now that she has returned to their association, it is not for discord or dissension, but that peace and fraternity may prevail, north, south, east, and west. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, peace and fraternity. Might want to look to that previous paragraph there. The sentiments were loudly applauded, and in the general expressions that I heard, there were no rejoicing over the lost cause, but that, that the next presidential fight was to be on the Virginia Walker platform, the same as the new departure, seemed to be the fixed sentiment of all. After various athletic sports during the day, the tournament took place at 4 p.m., the knights represented all portions of the state, and the skill in tilting and horsemanship was exceedingly fine. Tomorrow night there will be a grand coronation ball at the Opera House, when the prizes will be delivered and ladies will be crowned by the successful knights. Tonight the city is illuminated in a great many places. Tar barrels are burning on the principal thoroughfares, and fireworks are being shot into the Empyrean in endless variety. The entire proceedings today chronicle a new era of feeling in the Old Dominion, in which loyalty and renewed love for the old flag are strongly blended. One of the features in this first anti-war national celebration of our independence is that it has been conducted by the young men, the growing generation, and by all former ex-Confederate soldiers. It is a happy augury of peace, happiness, and prosperity for the future. I... I wish I had better words. I wish I would have, was more articulate. Everything within me it just recoils at 
the foulness of the hypocrisy marbling every paragraph. Now, <laughs> again, same page. Here's the kicker. Here's the real fucking heel turn. Keep in mind, I've just read you a mass of hypocrisy about how everything's fine now, the Negro has his rights, the war is over, everything should just go back to normal, there should be no thought of looking to the past, let's move forward, no federal restrictions, we're all one big happy country again. Celebration in Harmony Grove, Massachusetts. A new departure in an old abolition stronghold. Woman's eligibility to office affirmed. Petticoated warriors in full cry after the Massachusetts judiciary. Harmony Grove, Framingham, July 4th, 1871. Old Harmony Grove has taken a, quote, new departure, unquote. Wendell Phillips, William Lloyd Garrison, and others of the ancient abolition stripe no longer come here upon the anniversaries of the nation's independence and the annual burning of a copy of the Constitution of the United States. An ancient custom with such reformers as those alluded to is now honored in the breach rather than the observance. The old grove is destined, however, to maintain its time-honored renown for gatherings of a purely radical character and to the petticoated female suffrage warriors of New England should be awarded the distinction of perpetuating its peculiar history. They held their preliminary or inauguration exercises today, and the occasion seemed to bring together all the pioneer and other advocates of female balloting in the eastern states. The jolly red face of Lucy Stone was early and prominent on the ground, and among the other prominent in others prominent in the cause who graced the eventful occasion with their presence were Mrs. Livermore, Stephen and Abby Foster, William S. Robinson, otherwise known as Warrington, Charles W. Stock, editor of the radical publication known as the Commonwealth, together with a few obscure clergymen and a medley of sympathizers who rejoice only in local fame, the whole concourse of people numbering something over a thousand. Lucy Stone presided, of course, and during the sessions of the forenoon and afternoon she was heard from with the usual regularity. All those mentioned above made spirited addresses, and there were also remarks from Jesse Jones of Natick, Reverend Mr. Stacy of Milford, Margaret W. Campbell of Springfield, Mrs. Dr. Mercy B. Jackson of Boston, and the whole wound up with a suitable poem from an enthusiastic rhyme manufacturer named Davis, hailing from the thrifty town of Clinton. All the speakers discoursed upon the general subject of women's suffrage and gave the same views which have been so many times reported for and read by the Herald Congregation. Hugh here. So, set like some pestilential diamond of, of out, outrageous, un unself-aware irony in this in this page this this whole setting of hypocrisy this whole page of 4th of July celebrations framed as hey let's look forward 
war's over. We've already engaged in way too much of this tyranny bullshit. We just let's let the states do what they what they're going to do. Um, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't let's not look backward. We're young America. Let's look forward. Then they do a heel turn, and they get all fucking butt hurt about abolitionists violating the con or burning the Constitution, and then. You notice how they rhetorically bind those abolitionists and their activities from before and during the war to the current social justice warriors? I mean, they might as well call them social justice warriors. They, they, they more or less did. They didn't use those exact words, but petticoated female suffrage warriors. It's so close. The rhetoric is so goddamned indistinguishable from today and the overweening hypocrisy. They couldn't have not known it. Just like the people of today goddamn well know that they're being monstrous hypocrites. That's not a bug. It's a feature. They know. And that's why I'm so pissed, because this shit hasn't changed a bit. The rhetoric, as I keep saying, is indistinguishable. It hasn't changed. You just brush away the contemporary vernacular, and we're saying the same shit that we said 150 years ago. Yeah, but hurt over what William Lloyd Garrison and his cronies said when they burned a constitution years ago. Oh, Lucy Stone, she's uh, her periods attract bears. <sighs> right in the middle of an entire page of forget the past, move forward. Fuck you. Then and now, fuck you. That's all I got. No, no, sorry. I lost myself for a minute there. I only went there. I only went to the Tribune of July 5th to tell you what the Tribune was spending its ink on. Tribune, I... I'm sorry, I misspoke. I only went to the Herald of July 5th to show you what they were spending their ink on. Now remember, the Herald and the Tribune were the two big contenders in the world of antebellum, Civil War, and Reconstruction New York City. The Tribune was populist in a way that no newspaper ever had been before Greeley took the helm. And the Herald was, well, the Herald fashioned itself as an independent. And what you just heard, that's what independent means in the context of the world of 1871. You know that saying, neutrality favors the oppressors? Yeah, the Herald exuded oozed New York City aloofness. It's so embarrassing, folks, to read the pages of the Herald between 1868 and 1871 as I have. It is so uniquely 
so smarmily a New York City newspaper. It's instantly recognizable to anyone who has spent time in New York City. The arrogant aloofness, the coolness, the, oh, I am way over this, I am way above this, I am too cool for any of this. And that favors the oppressor. And it's why I have had to remind myself periodically that unlike a lot of towns that had one or two Republican newspapers and one or two Democratic newspapers, New York was New York was a wild card. New York was different. The the Tribune was very much a populist, most of the time liberal newspaper, but the Herald fashioned itself as an independent, but in a lot of ways it was functionally a democratic paper. And uh, that that the way in which that entire page gloried in its own hypocrisy is, is, is par for the course for the Herald. Page after page of that bullshit. It's like, it's like wading through sewage. Not in the same way that the Syracuse Courier and Union, that copperhead shit spout, is, is like wading through sewage. But as someone who's lived in the New York area since around 2000, there is a particular discomfort of, of reading the Herald from this time because of that particular flavor of aloof, oh, I am so over this hypocrisy. So... Again, I just wanted to give you a flavor for what a lot of papers were saying about the life of Samuel J. May, which didn't even mention his, uh, his abolition activity, and I think that speaks to the death of Reconstruction, because it was much easier to not bring up the stuff that uh, made people uncomfortable. Just focus on <laughs> the homilies focus on the stuff that everybody can feel good about. Don't, don't bring up that old stuff. War is over. Let's look forward. Let's move on. And that's why the Ku Klux Klan and all the other myriad constellation of forces that represented the opposition to Reconstruction that's why those forces won. The people who wanted to remember why Samuel J. May's work and why the work of all of those other people who devoted their lives to the cause, why that was necessary, and why we had to have the perseverance to follow through on the legacy of the war. Why that was necessary. We didn't have the stick to to do that. And uh, folded like a house of cards, and six years later, Reconstruction was a memory, and Jim Crow settled in. And I want to remember 
men like Samuel J. May who fought against that tide. And I want to, in some small way, compensate for those compensate for all those voices that turned away from what his life truly meant. They turned away from what his life was devoted to and turned towards something more comfortable. And I consider that a betrayal. Because if we forget what his life was truly spent on, then that currency is devalued. I want to remember. I want to remember the truth. So, this is my first episode about the life of Samuel J. May. There will be more. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening, and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole away.